Some of you will recognize this picture. Uh, This is a man named Lee, and later I'll talk a little bit more about his full story. But for much of his life, he said, I was an atheist. To quote, I determined at a young age that God didn't create people, but that people created God. Fearful of death, they invented in regards to a benevolent deity and a blissful heaven to give them an illusion of hope. The mere idea that an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe seemed so absurd to me that it wasn't even worth my time to check it out. Granted, I tend to be a skeptic, still quoting, My education is in journalism and law, and for years I served as the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, where we prided ourselves on our skepticism. We didn't take anyone's word at face value, instead preferring to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we printed it in the paper. The newspaper, for those of you who may not know, it used to come in a folded way, and usually on Sundays there were sales ads for... Okay. So, one of my colleagues actually had a sign. Remember, they're skeptical people. One of my colleagues actually had a sign in his cubicle that reflected our cynicism. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. That's pretty cynical. Continuing to quote, One afternoon, my wife rocked our marriage by announcing that after a period of spiritual searching, she had decided to become a follower of Jesus. I expected the worst. But in the ensuing months, I began to see positive changes in her character and values. Finally, when she invited me to go to her church one Sunday, I decided to go, partly because I was impressed with the things that I was seeing in her life, and partly because I'd hoped that I might be able to get her out of this cult that she was getting entangled in. The pastor's message that morning, aptly titled Basic Christianity, stunned me by shattering so many of the misconceptions I had about faith. Thoroughly intrigued, I decided to use my journalism and legal training to systematically investigate whether there was credibility to any religion, especially Christianity. This launched me into what turned out to be a nearly two-year spiritual journey, end quote. Now, I think we can all agree Jesus made some pretty audacious claims, made some pretty bold claims. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he opens up, he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he opens it up and finds the portion from Isaiah 61 and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And in this moment, Jesus declared that he was the answer to the greatest problems and the greatest needs of humanity. I'll tell you, in the last several days, I've been reminded of just how great the needs of humanity are. People are lost, people are broken. People are struggling with addictions. Um, People in many ways are hopeless, at least on their own. And Jesus declared in this moment in Luke 4 that he was the answer for the greatest problems and needs of humanity. He would go even further. John chapter 14, verse 6, probably familiar to many of you. I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claimed to be the only means to salvation, the only means to God, the only means to life, the only means to eternal life. And in multiple moments in his ministry, he claimed, and it got him in trouble, so to speak, he claimed to have the authority and power to forgive the sins of humanity. It got him in trouble because the religious people called him blasphemous and said only God can forgive sin, but would not acknowledge that he himself was God, the Messiah sent from the Father. Now, C.S. Lewis, when you take the claims of Jesus, C.S. Lewis is known for popularizing what's called the trilemma concerning Jesus. It goes like this. If Jesus knew he wasn't God, but he claimed to be God, then he was a liar. He was a bad guy, and he was a con man. If Jesus thought he was God, but he wasn't God, then Jesus was a lunatic. He was mad, even insane. 
If Jesus claimed to be God, and He was God, and He backed it up, Jesus was Lord. He was God, and He was telling the truth. Now, some people throughout history have been willing to claim that Jesus was a morally good person or even a morally good teacher, taught many morals in His teachings. But that premise lined up against the framework that we just shared about C.S. Lewis doesn't line up. Con men don't make good moral teachers, and they certainly would wouldn't uh, allow them their life to be sacrificed to die. They would back out before they gave their life. Insane people wouldn't make good moral teachers, and they might attract a following for a short amount of time or a small group, but it wouldn't last. So if a person claims that Jesus was a good moral teacher, then they also are claiming that Jesus had to be more than just a mortal, and certainly not a con man or insane. Other people have tried to paint Jesus as just a legend, a fable, a fairy tale, a made-up figure of history that didn't really exist. The problem with that is that we have historians inside and outside of Scripture and even the skeptics and other religious thought who all acknowledge the existence of Jesus in history, that He was on earth, that He lived on earth. So what is the key issue? How do we determine... Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do we know that he, His claims are true? And is there a way to prove Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of humanity as a result? The man I referenced just a few moments ago named Lee said, It didn't take long for me to conclude in my search that the truth or falsity of all world religions, the ultimate meaning of life itself, comes down to just one key issue. Did Jesus, or did He not, return from the dead? The answer to that fundamental question would settle everything. He goes on to say, and I quote, Why? Because Jesus claimed to be the unique Son of God. Even in the earliest biography written about Him, the Gospel of Mark, which is based on the eyewitness accounts of the Apostle Peter, Jesus calls Himself the Son of Man. This wasn't a new title. This was actually a reference back to the prophetic words of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in which the Son of Man is described in the future as being one with divine attributes. He was one in the very presence of the Father. He had authority, glory, and sovereign power. He's worshipped by all nations, and He will come at the end of the world to judge humankind and rule forever. In other words, the Son of Man, by claim to being the Son of Man, in effect, was a claim to His divinity, that He was God. Yet think about this. Anybody could make such a claim, even me. The real question... Lee went on to say, is whether the assertion can be backed up. However, if Jesus not only claimed to be divine, but then He also returned from the dead after three days in a tomb, well, that would be pretty convincing evidence that He was telling the truth. In other words, rising from the dead would validate Jesus' proclamation of His divinity. This explains why the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Now, the Apostle Paul and his writings in the New Testament actually fully agreed with this thought long before this thought was ever written. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living in the time of Paul, though some have fallen asleep or passed away. Then he appeared to James. We'll talk about him more in a moment. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul said, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. To indicate the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul went on to write in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. A few verses later he said, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What was he saying? He was saying that if Jesus is still in a tomb... He was like every other man who's ever come before him and every other man who's lived since. 
But if his tomb is not just empty, but if he really rose from the dead and appeared to and is still alive, then we've got a reason for faith. We've got a reason to believe in his claims because that proved who he said he was. And if, if that's only for this life, then what difference does that make? But if he's alive, that means there's more meaning for what's to come after this life, after we face an appointment with death. There is a reason in the Christian world we celebrate and talk so much about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because true Christianity is centered around the identity and finished work of Jesus, especially including His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Hear me out. True Christianity is not just another religion. True Christianity is not just a man-made tradition. I'll go a step further. True Christianity is not just synonymous with American citizenship. Just because you are an American does not mean you are a Christian. True Christianity is not synonymous with a political party. No matter which animal or color you vote for, that doesn't guarantee one way or the other that you're a Christian. And true Christianity is not just a set of culturally appropriate morals or mere good ideas that we should adopt in how to live the best life. True Christianity is centered around the person and finished work of Jesus. And it means believing in Him, which leads to following Him with our lives. And everything we believe and everything we live by hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. For if the resurrection isn't true, then His claims aren't true. But if the resurrection is true then Jesus' claims are true, and we've got to do something with Jesus in our lives. I can present the case to you, but ultimately every one of us have to choose, will we believe in Him or not? How do we know the resurrection of Jesus is true? How would you go about having a conversation with someone about the validity, the facts, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus? Now, many of you might say to me today, well, of course... We know it to be true because the Bible tells me so. We've been singing that song for years, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? And you're right. The Bible does tell us that. And as Jesus followers, we understand that the Bible was inspired of God to be written through those penmen or those writers and that Scripture is inerrant or without error, we often talk about the books of the Bible and we talk about multiple authors, but in reality, we should frame our viewpoint of Scripture with there being one author and multiple people who wrote the words. Because all of Scripture is from God to us, and the Word of God is without error. Are there times we may not understand something? Sure, because we're limited, and God constantly is revealing more to us. But that does not mean that because we don't understand it, the Bible has errors. The Bible is without error. So the Bible, therefore, if it's inspired of God, God's Word to us, and if it's without error, then the Bible is not just another book. The Bible is literally God's Word to us. So maybe you would say today, well, we know Jesus' resurrection is true because the Scripture tells us. But the reality is, not everyone in our world today holds that same view. In fact, I'll go far enough to tell you today that if we held Scripture to the level of authority that Scripture should be held, we wouldn't be having a lot of the conversations we're having in our culture right now. Because many of the things that we are debating, arguing, passing legislation, you name it, many of the things that are happening are clearly defined in Scripture. And all we have to do is follow what God has spoken to us, but we're not always good at doing that, are we? This is the issue. We don't, we don't hold that Bible to that same place. And there are a lot of people in our world today, and you, you probably know some of these people, that they question the Bible. They question certain parts of the Bible. They question certain things that happened in the Bible that seem to paint the picture about God that's different from what they think God is. And many people don't consider the Bible trustworthy because individuals were involved in that writing process. 
So my appeal today is not simply to a scriptural basis for understanding the resurrection of Christ, although we do hold Scripture to be inspired and inerrant. But today we also want to make sure that we're able to show that the resurrection of Jesus is certain and His claims, therefore, are certain as well. Now maybe you would also say, well, I know Jesus is alive because of what He's done in my life. How many of you can say, you know Jesus has changed your life? Uh, everybody in the room, hopefully, has already experienced that God literally takes that old life and brings new life, a new beginning, as we journey with Him. But the reality is we, we're not just coming from the place of our own personal radical life change. Most of us, I'm sure, were probably saved in a service kind of like this. A preacher preached the gospel and we responded to a tug of the Holy Spirit that said, you need Jesus. What we need to do is be able to go all the way back to the, the inner circle, the first hand, if you will, and be able to show that Jesus' resurrection was so certain that what we're living today is not based on legend or fairy tale or some concocted story, but that this is truth. This is reality, and that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. So I want to talk through a few thoughts with you today, and we'll move through them pretty quickly. So slide on your thinking caps and stay awake if you need to. I give you permission to elbow your neighbor. Let's first talk about the Gospels. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said you weren't going to pull from Scripture. When we talk about the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, yes, we do believe as Jesus followers that these were inspired accounts that were written by men who were led of God to do so. However, when you consider these Gospels, you need to do more than just consider them scriptural accounts. You also need to understand that these are accurate historical accounts as well. Matthew and John were both first-hand eyewitnesses, disciples of Jesus himself. Okay? So when Matthew and John are writing, they're not writing from the old telephone game where somebody passed the secret down the line to them. They're not making up their own version of the story. They're simply documenting what they lived out. They experienced it firsthand. They spent that time with Jesus. Mark, in his writings, was a close acquaintance of Peter. Peter was another one of those first-hand eyewitnesses, first-hand disciples of Jesus. So Mark's gospel, as well, is documented straight from the source. And then Luke wrote in the first few verses of his gospel, the first part of a two-volume set known as Luke and Acts, Luke said, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by, some, by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things you've been taught. What is Luke saying? Hey, there are other guys, first-hand witnesses, they've already written these things down. I'm going back and I'm investigating from them and the people that were there, and I'm doing my very best to get every detail exactly how it needs to be so that you can know with certainty this is not just a made-up story. You should believe in Jesus because He is alive and well, and His claims are true. So th when you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think about four independent accounts, not sitting all down together when they're writing them, four independent accounts written to different audiences, focusing on some of the same details and some of the different details that their audience needed to hear. For example, if you're writing about a Jewish to a Jewish audience, you would include certain things that connect them back to the Jewish law so they could comprehend and understand. If you're writing to a Gentile audience, you might include different things that help them to see that Jesus really was the Son of God and so on. Now, skeptics of Scripture, even the ones who are anti, if you will, would agree that the Gospels were in fact written, and many of them, their, their more extensive guess is that in their mind that the Gospels were written possibly 60 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, 
New Testament scholars will tell you that it's probably not that long, but for the sake of conversation today, we'll take the most liberal answer and we'll say they were written 60 years. And if the crucifixion happened in 30 or 33 A.D., we're looking more like 90 or 93 A.D. when the Gospels were written. Even in that thought... You might would say today, well, that seems like it was written a while after things actually happened. Couldn't there be room for things to shift? Couldn't there be room for things to change? Couldn't people embellish or adjust the story? Take into account some of our secular history in our world. How many have ever heard of the person named Alexander the Great? Okay. If you haven't, we'll offer a history class. Um... It was last week, actually. You missed it. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, For understanding, let me contrast the historical account of the Gospels being written to the figure of Alexander the Great. Two of the biographies of Alexander the Great, two of the earliest biographies, the earliest biographies, were written by Arian and Plutarch more than 400 years after Alexander's death in 323 B.C. And yet historians hold on to these resources as trustworthy. We we pull everything we know about Alexander the Great, we pull everything we know about his history from sources that were written more than 400 years after he died. So here we have facts about Jesus that even the skeptics say were written 60 years after they all happened. So are you tracking with me? Even if they were written 60 years after the events... They're written in a much shorter time span than even some of the greatest figures of history that we take as, if I can use this term, gospel truth, and take to heart, and yet they were written much later. You see what I'm saying? So the skeptics don't have a lot of weight to carry in that argument when we take a lot of things to heart from sources that were written much later. Consider also that the Apostle Paul actually wrote his letters. Go, go look for this yourself. If you, how many of you have a study Bible? Anybody use a study Bible? Okay, if you don't have one, I can recommend one for you. It's called the Fire Bible. It's one of the best study Bibles you can ever buy. I promise. And to show you how much I mean it, I've got some. I will give them away for free. They're on this campus. I believe in it that much because I know these notes are so wonderful in helping you understand Scripture. If you go back and look in your study Bibles... There are often articles just before the book begins that talk to you about when those letters or when those writings were written. And if you go study, remember the New Testament is not in chronological order. Okay, So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul actually wrote many of his letters before the Gospels were even written. So in his writings, the Apostle Paul shared what we know now as oral traditions. Now remember, they didn't have a cell phone back then. They didn't even have a cassette recorder. For those of you who don't know, cassettes were these little rectangular things that you had to stick the pencil in and rewind it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody eight tracks? Okay. Uh, Vinyl records? Okay. Um, I don't know how far to go back from that. So I was in Walmart the other day, I kid you not, and I looked down on the shelf does anybody remember when cars didn't have CD players? Not, not now, because we all have satellite radio, I guess. But when, when cars didn't have CD players and you wanted to have your personal CD player, you could plug in a cassette adapter. They still sell those things. I had no idea. No idea. Well, they didn't have all of that back then. And the reality is a lot of people back in Bible times couldn't even read. So what happened is they began to develop these oral traditions that were written in forms of creeds, and they were intended to be easy to say and easy to memorize so they could be easily passed on. One of the earliest oral traditions of church history actually comes from the passage we just read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice again what Paul said. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. You notice the language there? I received, now I'm passing on to you. This is part of that tradition that was then passed along. And it's important, because if Paul wrote this tradition, let me connect the dots for you, if Paul wrote his letters before the Gospels, all right, tracking with me so far? Some of you are already at lunch mentally. 
If, if he wrote his letters before the Gospels, and the Gospel were written, we're going to take the longest guess, say the Gospels were written 60 years after Jesus. Well, Paul's writings were before that. So now we're backing up even more, right? And Paul had to have heard this before he could write it. Just shake your head, yes. Paul had to have heard this before he could write it down, right? So the tradition had to already exist before Paul wrote his letters. All right, we're getting somewhere. Scholars will actually tell us that they believe after Paul's conversion experience, when he goes to Jerusalem to begin to fellowship with the early church, that's when he learned this oral tradition. And if that's the case, we are now within three, two, three, five years of all these events taking place, and now we're seeing documentation that's almost during the same exact time period. We take secular sources and secular history from things that were written 400 years after people died, and yet we have things that are accounted for us through history that are within three to five years of when Jesus was alive. Are you with me? The validity of these sources, the validity of history, oral tradition. Then we also have Paul's personal experience. Now this is different than what our personal experience would be. As I said earlier, most of us were probably in a church service just like this, and we heard the gospel preached, and we responded to that tug of the Holy Spirit, and whether we came forward or prayed a prayer where we were, whatever the case, we responded kind of as a second-hand hearing of the gospel. Paul converted to Christianity from a first-hand encounter with Jesus. So not only is he having fellowship with the early church, not only is he talking to the disciples and knowing what they've seen, but then Paul says, as if I was born at the wrong time or abnormally born, here I am and I had an encounter with Jesus. You know the story. He has an encounter with Jesus and, and states that he saw the resurrected Christ. Now, how big and how important is this really? Who was Paul before he had an encounter with Jesus? Saul. And what was Saul known for doing? Maybe even murdering. Let's call it what it is. Throughout history now, Paul has been known as the murderer to the messenger. Right? So Saul is the one who's standing when they're stoning Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Saul is the one who's standing there holding the coats of the men who are stoning Stephen and in full support of it. Saul is the one in Acts chapter 8 that the Bible says was breathing threats against Christians and they were forced to scatter from Jerusalem into other areas. Are you tracking with me? This guy was an enemy of the cross. And enemies who have given their entire life to fight against something aren't just going to magically one day decide to get up in the morning and turn around and do the opposite. So it goes to show just how incredible this encounter with Jesus must have been because it made him from a murderer to a messenger of Christ. He goes from the one who's causing the church the most trouble to arguably one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. Because he saw the resurrected Jesus. It's pretty incredible. And then we also have written sources of history outside of Scripture. So we've talked about the Gospels, and we've talked about the Apostle Paul for quite a bit. And I'm just going to reference these, and you can go study on these yourself. During this conversation for the next few weeks, we'll give you some resources that you can read as well. Uh, you'll want to have plenty of coffee, your thinking cap, and not be sleepy. Because it, there's a lot of information you can take in these conversations. But we have written sources of history that are from outside of Scripture. They're not just in Scripture. Uh, Clement, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Polycarp, all early church fathers. That doesn't include the Roman historian Tacitus, who, whose writings capture Christ and his crucifixion and the actions of Jesus' followers after Jesus' time on earth. It doesn't include the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus is kind of a funny name to me, and it's easy to remember, because when I grew up in the South, everybody's name was Josephus. Or Jethro, or Rufus. Or some kind of version of that. So it's pretty easy for me to remember. But he was a Jewish historian whose writings, you can go back and track this for yourself, also captured Christ and captured his crucifixion and captured his death and captured what his followers did after Jesus was in his earthly ministry. What's my point? 
Everything points back to the validity of Jesus' resurrection. All of history, all of these documents, all of these individuals, they're all pointing back to the reality of Christ being alive and well. So let me give you some rapid-fire review and kind of attack a couple of the skeptical arguments that are in our world today. Jesus is known, first of all, for actually having lived on earth. That's well documented that he lived on earth at some point. Jesus is known for having made audacious claims. And the question became, as we talked about earlier, did he back them up? We know from history that Jesus died by crucifixion. And that's not just scriptural account either. There are actually some critics. One is an atheist named Gerd Ludemann, and another one is an agnostic named Bart Ehrman, and they call the crucifixion of Jesus an indisputable fact. So these are the, these are the, the critics of New Testament. These are the critics of history, and they're saying the, the crucifixion of Jesus is a, an indisputable fact. The crucifixion was documented by scriptural accounts as well as non-scriptural accounts, And Jesus did actually die on the cross. One of the popular arguments today against the resurrection of Jesus is that he didn't really die on the cross. That when they took him down off the cross and put him in the tomb, he was just unconscious. And that somebody got him out of the tomb and helped him, whether it was resuscitation or whether it was just recover from all of his injuries, there are people who basically say he really didn't die on the cross. Let me just share with you really quickly, if you happen to come across someone who wants to have that conversation. First of all, remember, crucifixion was very well known in that time period. The people who hung Jesus on that cross were trained killers. They were master executioners, and they would have full well known whether Jesus was alive or dead. And and even though they didn't break Jesus' legs like they did so many of the people who were crucified so they couldn't pull up and take a breath. The Bible says that a spear was thrust in to his side. And medical journalists in modern day time have documented that that spear, the angle in which and what took place, likely penetrated the sack around the heart. So even if Jesus wasn't dead at that moment, he was certainly dead after the spear went in. Now we believe, obviously, Jesus said it is finished and it was done right then. So even even secular medical writers have set out to write of the excruciating torture, not only of the crucifixion, but also of the flogging that would have taken place beforehand. Remember, Jesus had already been put with his hands on an upright post and whipped on his back, probably his buttocks and his legs. And the, the tool that they used to whip him was made of not only small iron balls, if you will, but also shards of sheep bones. So every time they're hitting Jesus, they're ripping his flesh, they're causing blood to pour out, and likely by the time it was all done, some of his internal organs could even have been exposed. That alone would have been enough to say, I'm out, right? I mean, that, we're not talking about some small thing here. We're talking about significant torture and punishment. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross, these medical journalists, these are not even people who proclaim Christianity, but these medical journalists talk about the very position of hanging on the cross. The feet were nailed together, and a person on the cross would have to try to push up out of the posture to be able to gain enough breath. That's why eventually they would typically break the legs of those who were being crucified, because they would die from not being able to pull up and breathe. Jesus hanging there would have had to push himself up to try to even take a breath. It would be hard, and eventually you just couldn't get your breath. So even the writers of medical journals, secular writers, have written of the excruciating torture in all of this. So if you say, well, Jesus didn't really die, I don't know that there's anyone who could withstand all the punishment that Jesus went through and still live. And then, of course, Pilate gave the body over to Joseph Arimathea to be buried in his tomb, and he would have never given the body over had Jesus still been alive and had the potential to recover. Jesus was buried in a tomb, and it may have been somewhat easy with the notch that was there in a stone 
uh, tomb. It's not like what you imagine with graves today, but in a stone tomb, it might have been easy for someone to kind of roll that stone down, but it would have taken multiple people to be able to roll it away. That's the reason why on the way to the tomb that morning, people were saying, who in the world are we going to have to roll this stone away? And there have been several disc-shaped stones or, or tombs discovered in Palestine. And what we have found throughout history is that they all belong to wealthy tomb owners and they all came from the time period of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. We first know, and this doesn't necessarily solidify it, but we first know that the tomb was empty. And we know that the tomb was empty not just because of scriptural writings, but we also know that the tomb was empty because there was an accusation levied against the disciples that they took the body, that they stole the body from the tomb and hid it elsewhere. If I'm coming up with a story that somebody stole the body, that must mean the tomb is empty, right? Are you tracking with me? (laughs) I should have given out more coffee in service probably. If, if they're coming up with a reason to try to blame someone, well, it must be that they stole the body, then obviously the, the tomb itself was empty. There was never a body produced. You can believe that if the Romans or the religious had seen or known where the body was, they would have produced the body of Jesus. Because if the disciples are going around saying, Jesus is alive, and then they knew where the body was, they would have went and gotten the body and say, no, he's not. He's a con man. These guys are all frauds. He's alive. Here's his body right here. He's dead. They would have proven that. No one was ever punished. You can believe that if they'd stolen the body, there would have been consequences for those who were part of the early church. And then, in addition to the tomb itself being empty, the part that really solidifies the resurrection of Jesus is the fact that Jesus appeared to multiple people in a 40-day period. He appeared to the disciples... And and he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Now, here's one of the arguments that exists today. One of the arguments that exists today is that, well, the disciples were grieving over losing Jesus, and so they were just having grief hallucinations. They were just seeing what they wanted to see. The guy I referenced earlier named Lee, I'll talk more about his story in a moment, he said, I went to a psychologist friend And I said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, it must be just a hallucination. And the psychologist told him, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people had the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. Paul later had an encounter with Jesus. And if Paul's story is not enough, then focus on the half-brother of Jesus named James. Perhaps you've read his writings in the New Testament. Go back in the Gospels and recall that James, the half-brother of Jesus, didn't even believe in Jesus and who he said he was. He was skeptical. But James, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, had his own encounter, and James went on to worship Christ, to live for Christ, and even write the book of James. And, And we've gone through all of this, right? And we haven't even talked about the pre-resurrection and post-resurrection behavior of the church themselves, of the disciples themselves. Consider with me, if you will, that prior to the crucifixion and resurrection, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples scattered. One turned him in and betrayed him, and another one denied that he was even associated with him. After the crucifixion and resurrection and the appearance of Jesus to these people over a 40-day period before he ascended back to heaven, all of these early-day disciples, except for Judas, all of these early-day disciples became bold in their faith and were willing then to give their lives, not from second-hand knowledge, but from a first-hand, visible, resurrected Jesus in front of them. It radically changed their life. In fact, if you study throughout history, every one of those disciples other than Judas and John, who they tried to boil alive and then left on the Isle of Patmos, if you study, every one of them gave their life for the cause of Christ. Peter, who had previously denied Jesus, was crucified, and history tells us that he was, he was adamant that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy enough to be crucified like Jesus. Something happened in these people's lives. They didn't just all of a sudden go from coward to bold. 
They had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and for centuries now, people have been living for Christ and giving their lives and defending the gospel because the resurrected Christ is alive and well and still changing people's lives. Which brings me to the story of the man named Lee who I started with. What about this guy who was an atheist? To quote, he said, My original investigation of Christianity, which began when I first read Luke's gospel while I was still an atheist, consumed a year and nine months of my life, culminating on a Sunday afternoon as I spent time alone in my bedroom. After accumulating so much evidence, I knew it was time to reach a verdict. Got to do something with Jesus. So I took a yellow legal pad and I began summarizing all of the historical data I had encountered during my 21-month odyssey. I filled page after page after page after page. Until finally I realized that in light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully towards the truth of Christianity, it would have required, listen to this, it would have required more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Seriously. Maintaining my atheism would have been like swimming upstream against a torrent of facts flowing the other direction. I couldn't do that. I'd been trained in journalism and law to respond to the truth. So at that moment, I reached a verdict. Based on the historical data, I was convinced that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, but he also validated that claim by returning from the dead. I put the pen down, and I remembered a verse that a Christian friend had pointed out to me once. I dug out my Bible and quickly found John chapter 1, verse 12 that says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Believe plus receive equals become. To quote, I realized at that moment that to believe Jesus is the unique Son of God is an important step, but it's simply not enough. I had to personally receive His free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that He purchased for me when He died on the cross as my substitute to pay for all my wrongdoing, past, present, and future. Only then would I become a child of God. So that's when I sank to my knees next to my bed and poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality. At that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Christ, and that's when I became a child of God forever. That's a reason to give God some praise, I think. Now, some of you were ahead of me when I started this message, but this guy is Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel is known today as one of the greatest Christian apologists and he is the one who wrote a book several years ago called The Case for Christ. There's since been a movie produced. He's written a number of other books to help people believe in the Creator, to help people have faith, and so on. And he's not the only story like this. There are other people who have set out to prove Christianity wrong. They've set out to prove that we're just crazy and silly and weak to believe all of these things. And yet when they came to their conclusion, they realized... Jesus is really alive. Jesus is really true, and I've got to do something with his claims. He realized and he believed and he received this truth. Christianity is real because Jesus is alive. Christianity is real. If he was still in the tomb, we might, we're wasting our time. That's what the Apostle Paul said. If he's still in the tomb, we're wasting our time. But because we know he is alive, then we know who he is and we know his claims to be true. Christianity is real because it's centered around Jesus and Jesus is alive. So I ask you today, what have you done with Jesus and his claims? And who are you helping to follow Jesus today? If you're in the room today, would you stand with me? you're online, I'd love for you to take a few moments. Maybe, maybe you'll even catch this later and have questions. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and, and only for one reason. I just don't want you to be distracted. I want you to be able to know what God is saying to you in these moments and how you need to respond. I think you probably fit one or two camps today. 
Maybe you're the person who has been skeptical about Christianity and Jesus and the Bible. Does God really exist? Maybe you got a lot of questions. And today is a day to open your heart towards God and let Him continually reveal Himself to you. Maybe today you, you're, you're a seeker. You've been seeking truth. And now you're beginning to say, wait a minute, there's something to this. And today you want to do more than just hear these words that have been shared. You want to take a step towards Jesus. You recognize you've got to do something with His claims. I want to tell you today that every human being was born under this problem of sin. Sin separates from God. Sin is our own rebellion, our own pride, our own way of doing things. God never intended that we would live in a fractured relationship with Him, but human beings have always proven our ability to fall short. We could never measure up to God's glorious, perfect standard. The Bible says it this way, All have sinned. All have sinned. No human being exempt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible goes far enough to tell us, and we know it throughout history, that when sin entered the world, death entered through sin. That the ultimate consequence of sin being a reality is that people die. And we've all seen that. But Scripture goes further to tell us good news in response to the bad news. The bad news is sin. The good news is Jesus. The Bible says that while the consequence of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can be saved. We can be forgiven. We can have life with God now and be on a journey with Jesus. And I promise you, this journey with Jesus is so amazing. He teaches us and He molds us and He shapes us and He guides us and He provides for us. He proves Himself constantly faithful. And then there's this promise that comes with life in Him for eternal life, forever. Being with God forever. Not separated from God anymore, but with God forever. So today, I want to I challenge you to do exactly what the story of Lee Strobel shared with us today in his own life. To believe and to receive and to become. To believe that Jesus really is the answer for the greatest need of humanity. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the cure. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in Him. And the Bible says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just that He exists somewhere out there, but now He's the Lord of your life, leading your life. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, there it is again, that resurrection, then you shall be saved. So believe And then receive from God what only God could have done for you. Receive this free gift of salvation. Well, Pastor Chris, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how I've lived. You don't know know how much of a mess my life is or has been. It doesn't matter. God's not asking you to get perfect and then come to Him because He knows that you could never do it anyway. God's calling you to Himself that then He can change your life. Old things pass away. All things become new in Him. So believe and receive His gift of salvation to you and then become a child of God, a person who is walking in relationship with God in your life. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're in camp one and, and you're the skeptic, you're the seeker, you're, you're the one who's wanting to make the decision to follow Jesus today. You want to do something with Jesus. You want to do something with His resurrection. You want to do something with His claims. Or maybe you're in camp number two today and, and I suspect that there could be many in camp number two, maybe even all. Camp number two is you know that Jesus has changed your life. You know that Jesus is working in you and and that he's been so wonderful to you to to save you and now to continue to transform and to continue to make you in every way. And today you say, you know what? I want to help somebody else follow Jesus. 
But maybe you're struggling with that because you recognize the people around you are skeptics. Maybe you're struggling with that because you feel like, well, they're going to ask me a question I don't know the answer to. I, I, need, I need some courage and boldness. We need the same courage and boldness that the early church had, that in the midst of every conversation, Jesus was the one who was exalted. Jesus was the one who was presented and represented. Jesus was the good news that was always on their lips. And so maybe you're in that second camp today that says, God, I need your empowerment that brings boldness and courage in my life to speak, to respond, to defend, to give answer in those moments. That fear would be gone, but that instead I would just simply walk through open doors of opportunity to have conversations with my family members, my friends, my neighbors, my co-workers. Maybe you're in that second camp today. I'm going to ask our prayer team members to come and make yourself available on either side of the auditorium. Today you may want to have a conversation with someone. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I'm trying to learn more about this Jesus, about resurrection, about new life in Him. What it looks like to have a relationship with God. I want to know more. There are people who will talk with you. There are people who will pray with you. There are people who will help you follow Jesus. Or maybe you're in that second camp today and you're saying, I'm just praying for more power and courage and boldness in my life to share Jesus. I'm following Jesus and I want to help other people follow Jesus. I want to inspire somebody else to follow Jesus. You recognize that Jesus is the answer. He's the cure. He's the solution. He's the one who can help with the greatest need of humanity and change people's lives. You know that because He's done it in you. And today you say, I want to help somebody else know that. I want to help somebody else follow Jesus. In one way or the other, I challenge you today to respond and let God work in your life. Let God work through your life. Christianity is real. True Christianity is real because Jesus is alive. I'm going to pray over you prayer of blessing today and I challenge you to spend some time responding in the way that you need to. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the evidence that demands a verdict. Thank you, Lord, for the proof of your power. Thank you, Lord, that because Jesus is alive, we can take to heart every word ever spoken, every claim, every promise resurrection verified, validated everything. I pray, oh God, that we will live like we believe that. God, help us. That we would truly live the resurrected life that only you can give. Father, I pray that you bless and keep this people and you make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. I pray your countenance, your favor ever be turned in their direction. And I pray grant them your peace. Keep us safe, well, and whole, I pray in Jesus' name.